0: Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CV. Action. Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 19. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are continuing our big lead-in into Mary Poppins Returns with a review of Saving Mr. Banks. Last week, we reviewed Mary Poppins, and now this is the movie about the making of the movie. The headache of the making of the movie. It, yeah, a headache to say the least. We didn't know Walt Disney personally, but he must have had the patience of a saint.
1: Yeah, I can imagine what he must have gone through, not just getting the rights of this movie, but he was working with an author who was so protective over her work, he had to fight her every step of the way to get this done.
0: Yeah, I mean, over 20 years it took him to get this movie made, from the time that he pursued her up to this point. I I mean, I I give him nothing but all the credit in the world, really.
1: Right. P.L. Travers... Didn't necessarily have an issue. I mean, she was open about the fact that she didn't really like Disney or his films or as she, as her character says in the movie, at one point, his money printing machine. But I believe the true story is that it wasn't so much her issue with Disney. It was with book to film adaptation. right? And that's what was so difficult about turning over the rights. And as we're going to talk about letting go of a character that she was very, very attached to.
0: Yeah, um, and I'm I'm going to give you the plot for this movie. This movie is told through a series of flashbacks. It cuts back and forth between 1906 and 1961. It doesn't play out <laughs> so well when it's read like this. It makes sense when you watch it. So just bear with me on this because... It does seem a bit convoluted because they flash back and forth constantly.
1: And to be fair, they don't really intro where they're at. They just cut scenes against each other and they don't tell you until you see P.L. Travers on screen as a child or in present day.
0: Yeah, I mean, did it work? We're going to get to that in just a little bit. The movie opens in Maryborough, Australia in 1906. We see P.L. Travers as a young child playing in a field. And then it's 1961, (laughs) so it happens immediately. P.L. Travers is met by her agent, who is discussing her upcoming meeting with Walt Disney. She is pushing back because she does not want to do this film with Walt Disney, but he explains to her that she has no money. She hasn't been writing, and her royalties have dried up. We then flash back to Australia to see Ginty, as her father calls her, as a child. She's playing with her dad. It's established very early on that P.L. Travers had a very close relationship with her father, Travers Goff. They are leaving their home. Um, They are also leaving Katie Nana. It's important to point out that... This film has a lot of references in regards to real-life people who then come around in Mary Poppins. Clearly, she was inspired by people in her life and used those people as inspiration for characters in her books and then later in the film. They're leaving because her father has taken a new job at a new bank and they go from this beautiful home to a remote home in the country. We then flash to Travers arriving in Los Angeles. She checks into the Beverly Hills Hotel to see the room packed with Disneyland merchandise as well as a fruit basket with pears that she immediately throws in the pool while she continues to say, no pears, no pears. She is taken to the Disney Studios, where she is less interested in seeing the studio itself and more interested in her meeting with Walt Disney. Walt promises that they will do an incredible job with her characters. Travers fights him on the film being a musical, but he convinces her to let him share Mary Poppins with the world. She then sits in on story meetings with Don Gradi and the Sherman brothers. Um, she pulls out a tape recorder, records every conversation, and scrutinizes everything, especially the made-up words, such as responsible. In their next meeting, she continues to scrutinize the architecture, the look of the characters, especially Mr. Banks' mustache, to which Bob Sherman protests her complaints, and in return, she kicks him out of the meeting. Walt is given a list of her demands up to and including her distaste of the mustache and her distaste of Dick Van Dyke and goes on to say that she doesn't want the color red in the film. There's a big dramatic confrontation between the two of them and Walt eventually relents and that's when we find out that he does not have the rights to the film just yet. We flash back to... Australia in the 1900s to see her father return home from work early to play with her and her sister come to find out that he's a drunk and he is battling a drinking problem um we then go back to the 1960s and see the Sherman brothers develop a spoonful of sugar which P.L. Travers hates because as she likes to point out Mary Poppins is here to prepare the children for the harsh realities of the world she then throws the script out the window Walt points out to her, no whimsy from the woman that sent a flying nanny with an umbrella to save the children. And P.L. Travers says, you think she's here to save the children? Um, we go back to the uh, Australia in the early 1900s to see uh, P.L. Travers go to her father's bank. And for all intents and purposes, she watches him get fired. But the bank owner takes pity on him because she was standing there and immediately gives him his job Back, You see right then and there in the next scene that they're both dreamers, and we know that they're very close. And clearly, something has happened in her life to harden her. We don't know exactly what that is just yet. Back to the Disney Studios, we see Walt Disney sitting with Richard Sherman as he plays Feed the Birds. And Walt says that he actually sees her side of it because Pat Powers tried to take Mickey Mouse from him. And as he said, the Mouse's family. So he understands where, to P.L. Travers, these characters mean more than just words on paper. We flash back to her childhood again, and you see in this scene in particular just how volatile the relationship is between her mother and her father. She is pretending to be some sort of bird or chicken, and she's laying eggs, as she says. And the mother wants her to go set the table for dinner, and her father screams at her to not interrupt Ginty while she's laying eggs. Um, In the next scene, we see what's the equivalent of a county fair? Her father is there on behalf of his bank to award some children. Um, he's giving awards. They don't really say what it's for, um, but he's drunk. He's drunk again, um, and he's giving a speech, which they are cutting against a 1961 version of the Sherman Brothers singing uh, Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, and... Um, At the end of his speech, he gets an applause in which he brings his daughter up and explains she has an account which is good. Give her a drink. I mean, give her a hand. Um, He then falls off the stage while laughing. Um, Back in the story meeting, Travers, out of nowhere, turns to the Shermans and Don DeGratty and says, "'Why are you making Mr. Banks so cruel?' out of nowhere, and she begs them, please don't make him cruel. We find out that her father is slowly dying of tuberculosis. He begs her for alcohol, which her mother won't be giving her, uh, or won't be giving him, I should say, but she sneaks him the booze anyway. Um, Back in the 1960s, we hear Ralph's story. Now, Ralph is the limo driver played by Paul Giamatti. He's been driving P.L. Travers around, um, really, for her entire stay in Los Angeles. And he's always very concerned about the weather. Up to this point, we don't understand why. We find out, though, that his daughter is in a wheelchair. It breaks his heart that she's in a wheelchair. And the weather means a lot to him because... If it's a nice day, she can go outside in the garden and enjoy the sun. If it's raining, he needs to keep her cooped up inside. This pains him quite a bit. Um, Her mother, uh, this is P.L. Travers' mother, confronts P.L. Travers saying, I know you gave him the booze. I know you love him more. Please take care of your sister. And she attempts suicide in front of her daughter. We then meet her aunt, which is coming with newfangled remedies for tuberculosis from Sydney, and we see that she is the direct inspiration uh, for Mary Poppins. Back to the 1960s, we go again, where Walt Disney takes P.L. Travers to Disneyland, and we see just how much people love him, and I think she kind of starts to turn the tide a little bit and she you know the wheels are spinning and she's thinking maybe it's not so bad because you see how the world has embraced him and it's the first time that she's really seen it. Um we then have the scene where they're back in the rehearsal room and they're performing let's go fly a kite. Um and they tell her we have this new ending to the movie Basically, they're showing her that they're going to redeem Mr. Banks. She starts to dance with Don DeGratty, and she's starting to come around now. Um, That all comes to a grinding halt when Travers finds out that the penguins in Jolly Holiday are going to be animated. She was told that the film would not be animated, which Walt Disney explains to her the film is not, but these characters are. And she leaves without signing the release and signing over the rights. Um, Ralph drives her to the airport where he shows her that his daughter is also reading Mary Poppins. She signs a copy of the book and then gives him a list of names, names like Albert Einstein, people that had limitations in their lives but became great things and basically says, you know, your daughter can be a great person, too, even though she has her limitations. Um, When Walt realizes that her last name is Goff and not Travers, he says, am I been speaking to the wrong person? This is after he's looking at invoices for the hotel and the flight back to England. Because, obviously, on a boarding pass, they're not going to put a pen name. They're going to put your birth name. Um, Back to Australia, we go where we find out that uh, Travers' father... Travers Goff, um, has died while she was out buying pears. Walt flies to England, speaks to Travers about her father, and she eventually signs over the rights to the film. She's not invited to the premiere, so she basically invites herself because, as her agent says, Mary Poppins wouldn't stand for that. Um, She shows up at the premiere um, and cries through... A great portion of the film, but more specifically, she cries through the Mr. Banks portion as he's walking off to be fired and then during his redemption of Let's Go Fly a Kite. And that is basically where the movie ends. Um, Was everybody paying attention? (laughs) You know,
1: it's difficult to understand when you lay it out like that, but... I really think that this was the best way to tell this story intercutting her childhood with present day trying to make the film because out of the gate, she's horrible. She's absolutely horrible. She's nasty to people.
0: Um, Oh, she's nasty to a woman on an airplane with a child.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, she's very witty, but she's just an unpleasant person and she doesn't care who knows it. And... I think that you kind of had to peel the onion layers back so that you understood why she is the way she is. I mean, there are some points where she's so horrible in this. There's like no excuse whatsoever, despite that she had a horrible childhood. But it definitely gives you a better understanding. Um, I think it was really smart to begin the film the way that they did with her agent or lawyer trying to convince her to go take the meeting with disney because i think if you reversed it and we started in los angeles or at the burbank studios i should say uh with disney you know trying to think of ways to convince her to hand over the rights i don't think she would have been likable at all because you know it's going to be an uphill battle you know what disney is up against if you know disney history and you know he had to fight her on this but i think you would have villainized her way too much and then we wouldn't care
0: at all and it also wouldn't develop a story exactly there's no drama there's no lead into this meeting right um you know, In all, it, it actually works very well the way that they did it, and, and a lot of it is artistic, but they did it in such a way where they were able to tell a full story by bouncing back and forth, and as convoluted as it sounds, reading it out on paper, on film... It's really cohesive, and it's really well done.
1: Yeah, this wasn't meant to be read on paper.
0: (laughs) No, not in the very least.
1: This was like the equivalent of her reading the script for Mary Poppins the first
0: time. (laughs) No, and even like as I'm watching the film, we've done on a couple of occasions like a total linear review of a movie. This you'd think would stand for it but there are so many tangents to go on on this movie that it would be a three-hour review and we probably wouldn't even finish the film
1: yeah and i think it would make even less sense for us to go about it that way
0: yeah so if if you thought that was confusing imagine what we would have done if we did a linear review and said, okay now stop we're going to talk about this it (laughs) would i forget it like i i'm having Ajita sitting here even thinking about what that would have been like but it's amazing to me that You know, good on them for for pushing the movie forward, because if you read this on on paper, you might have said this. This is too all over the place. I don't know that this makes sense, but they believed in, you know, enough in the filmmakers and the actors to pull it off. And they did a fantastic job.
1: They really did. This was an incredible ensemble cast throughout, Um, starting with Emma Thompson as P. L. Travers.
0: I mean, she's good in everything.
1: She's an excellent actress, and I had, you know, high expectations of her in this, but her performance blew me away. Because you know what's funny too is that she's Nanny McPhee, which is almost like a Mary Poppins character, but to see her as the complete opposite and being this horrible person. She not only pulled it off, but she gave her so many quirks and tics and it made me instantly hate her from the beginning. Like, for example, back to her meeting with her lawyer where he is trying to coax her to go take this meeting with Disney. Um, They won't say the name Mary Poppins. She keeps saying she and I don't want to give her up and they're going to make her cavorting and twinkling and... You know, you see the attachment to the character right away. She's talking about her as if she's a person. And that's where I became really, really engaged. I remember seeing this for the first time because it was so believable immediately.
0: Yeah. Um, I thought that the sets in this movie were incredible. You know, obviously you're doing a period piece here and... I think that that works cohesively with exactly what you said in terms of making the film believable and making it realistic from the sets down to the vehicles and the outfits. I mean, they knocked it completely out of the park.
1: Yeah, they really did, especially, you know, her home in London, which is the basis for Cherry Tree Lane. They do a great job of establishing everything, not just through the sets, because you can immediately tell that they're in London even before you've seen the outside of her home. But she's talking about how she just had to, she just fired her maid because she was incompetent or incompetent in the eyes of somebody who has the bar set very, very high.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, It's, her life lends itself to her miserable nature. Yes. Um, But you don't realize that until you're three quarters of the way through the film. So... You you feel bad for her in retrospect, and you understand her in retrospect, but you absolutely can't stand her for the first three quarters of the movie, but at the same time, you can't wait to see what she's going to do next.
1: Yeah, because she, she seems like quite a loose cannon. Like, yeah. like I said, there's there's no excuse for her behavior, and as I'm watching this, I'm thinking... The same thing you know that Disney expressed in this film is how did somebody who sent a, f- a woman that flies in an umbrella to you know make these magical experiences for children? How did you write that, and how are you such a snob, especially you know like you were talking about the airplane scene earlier where um you know she's trying to stuff her bag in the overhead compartment, and there's clearly enough not enough room which. We've talked about in previous episodes, Disney being so far ahead of its time. I really do think that they can see into the future because those compartments the the last like five flights I've been on, there is no room up there.
0: You would think that I can watch a hundred channels of direct TV and get serious <laughs> satellite radio in, in in my seat, but they haven't figured out the compartments yet,
1: right. So the woman with a newborn child, offers to give up her bag in the overhead space to make room for P.L. Travers' bag. And then P.L. Travers notices the child, and she's like, is that going to be a nuisance? And I was just like, God, she's awful.
0: Yeah. Um, but I, I think we mentioned it before, and it's, it, it bears saying again that Emma Thompson's so good I mean, she makes this character, which I know sounds funny because this was a real person, but I mean, it takes a certain kind of actress to portray this type of person and make her completely dislikable, but still leave room for a redemption or a character arc. Right.
1: Because her delivery is amazing. Like she really is just so aggressive at
0: times. She is stone cold.
1: But even just like the little ticks that she gave her, like she's constantly like brushing dirt that doesn't exist off of her clothing. You know, she's, she's very prim and proper, but at the same time, she kind of wants to let everyone know that she thinks she's better than them.
0: Right, and she's constantly talking to herself, tapping herself on the head, like so neurotic. Yes. Like, there's always something going on, and she's always like anticipating what's the next awful thing you're going to do. And if she had a line like that, what uh what was it? What nightmares do you have in store for my characters today? Yeah, yeah. Which could... I think was what she said leading into Let's Go Fly a Kite, I think.
1: I think so, yeah. Um she kind of reminds me of Scar sometimes. I'm surrounded by idiots. Yes. Referring to the hyenas.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. When I heard that they had cast Tom Hanks as Walt Disney I'll be honest with you I love Tom Hanks but I wasn't really sure what to make of it I I remember thinking well he doesn't really look like Walt Disney and I remember even seeing like early onset photographs and with the with the exception of maybe like a nose piece and they they squinted his eyes a little bit I'm like he just looks like Tom Hanks to me Um, but if you needed any proof that Tom Hanks can do no wrong, (laughs) go ahead and watch this movie because what's incredible is that he has that Mississippi accent or that Missouri accent down, but his inflections and his mannerisms within the first five minutes of seeing him on screen, you forget that you're watching Tom Hanks. You are watching Walt Disney. I actually have to disagree with you on that one. Oh, no.
1: Yeah. When I found out that they cast him, I was like, oh, my gosh, you have America's favorite dad, except maybe for Bob Saget, playing America's grandpa. You know, I I thought this was perfect casting. I I really did have a high expectation of him. And for the most part, he met it. But um, I definitely disagree with you. I don't think he looks like Disney um you're right they definitely did something to his eyes to make him look like him I don't think they did anything to his nose and I don't think it looked like Disney's at all um and I think he had the mannerisms down but I don't think he had the speech and I hate saying that because I do know that he worked with a dialect coach to get that down but I feel like you still have kind of that um like that low Tom Hanks voice and that that graveliness and I don't think it perfectly embodied Walt. I think I think um, Walt was a bit more like nasal than he than he was able to do it. I I don't think he said picture right at all. That that's my biggest gripe with it is that Walt had such a way of saying the picture and. I don't think Tom Hanks
0: delivered on that for me. Yeah, I actually I actually see exactly what you're talking about. And and for people that have seen a lot of footage of Walt Disney, you're right. He he didn't say that word properly. I also think that it's hard to do a nasally voice without it coming off as making fun of somebody.
1: I would agree with you there. And I I think his voice is just too deep to pull it off. But if we're talking about if that was the concession they had to make to cast Tom Hanks, I would have rather seen Tom Hanks do it than anyone. Right. So I can totally live with this. And like to me, it almost doesn't matter if it was perfect or not, because what he captured most about Disney, where I can overlook the voice, I can overlook the mannerisms, he captured the magic. There is a glint in his eye through this entire film and you can't teach that. You can't train it. You just have to have it. And he does a million times over Mm -hmm. from the first time we really see him as Walt Disney on screen is when Pamela arrives at her hotel. I'm sorry, Mrs. Travers (laughs) arrives at her hotel room. Um, which is hilarious, by the way, where, I mean, who wouldn't want to open a door and be greeted by all of this Disney merchandise? That's my dream.
0: You know, lay
1: off my Disney visa, just get it for free in the gift bags. Um, But she pops on the TV, and that's where we see Tom Hanks' Disney for the first time. And it's in, you know, I'm sure everyone has seen the video where Tink sprinkles him with pixie dust, and he kind of rises off the floor in his office. And seeing that for the first time, I was blown away. And like I said, I've nitpicked the performance a little bit throughout the rest of the movie, but Disney's in essence and he got it. And, and that's something that, you know, it really doesn't matter if when it comes down to the nitty gritty.
0: Right. If there was one thing that got, I don't want to say annoying, but if there was one thing in this movie that kind of got at me by the end, it was that whole mrs travers thing because she would say mrs travers please as if she was speaking to somebody else right it's like please i'm mrs travers that's really how she should have said it but mrs travers please like you are mrs travers you but you're you she's saying it as if she is speaking to Mrs. Travers. You
1: would say, call me Mrs.
0: Travers. Or please, Mrs. Travers.
1: Yeah. Because that's why she confuses Ralph when she first meets him, her limo driver. He says, uh, I think he says, You're P. L Travers, and she's like, Mrs. And he's like, Mrs. P. L. Travers. And she's like, No, that's wrong. I she's think like, she no, it's
0: just it's just it's, ju- it's just Mrs. So then he calls her Mrs.
1: for the rest of the film.
0: Right. And what needs to be pointed out here is that on the Disney lot, they never called each other by their last name. They were on a first name basis. So when she comes into this environment where they're saying, oh, Walt, Don, Dick, uh, Bob, you know, Tony, Tommy. Oh Pamela, to her she can't. It's so informal that she can't wrap her mind around it.
1: Oh, but that's like blasphemy for Disney to not be on a first name basis. She does call him Mr. Disney.
0: I don't think she calls him Walt once in the film. In retrospect,
1: I think she might at the end when he goes to visit her. But what I what I like about that she calls
0: him Walt Disney.
1: Yes, yes, full name. But that's also another one of her quirks is that she only wants mary poppins to be referred to as mary poppins not just mary right um which i find myself doing every time i say mary poppins now that we've done the two reviews i've never called her mary it's been the full name every time right um see that didn't that didn't uh bother me at all um because I think that may be one of those things where Disney's kind of in on the joke. I don't know how historically accurate that was. I have to imagine this must have been something that she did enforce, like, call me Mrs. Travers. Um, Otherwise, why have they kept going back to it and keep it as a running bit? Um, But I like that Ralph took it so literal and just called her Mrs. throughout the whole thing. Um, So I'm wondering if that was kind of you know, even though Walt is unfortunately not around anymore, I'm almost wondering if like, that's their way of like getting even with her for, for making them do that. And for, for really violating a company value, you know, she is coming out to California. Granted it's her material, but she's on their turf. You know, they did have a very family oriented corporate culture and, you know, when you've, that, that's a rare thing now. Like, yeah. you should be respectful of that, that it's, you know, they want you to be a bit informal.
0: mm mm-hmm. um, I, I love Ralph as a character. Me and too. And Paul Giamatti is good in everything that he is. He, or era in everything that he's in, I should say.
1: He was a really pleasant surprise for me. I, I love him playing this character, but I love the character
0: as well. You know, what's important to point out is that Ralph didn't actually exist. Ralph was an amalgamation of many people who worked on the set. Mm-hmm. But he's ne- he- he's necessary because that's the only person that at any point in the movie she actually connects with. It's the only relationship she really builds. And I think that you had to do that because otherwise she's not a human being.
1: I was just going to say she would have been too robotic you really need to you needed to ground her in something but i mean what they did was they gave him such a lovely story and he's such a he's such a charming character yeah um you know it's easy to see where he was able to finally win her over
0: yeah and you know his his overall demeanor and his his view of the world is something that I think is appealing to a lot of people. And to contrast that off of this human being who, as I referred to earlier as being completely stone cold, it it made for such an interesting like yin and yang, you know,
1: from their very first conversation, um, you know, after the airport, she doesn't want to be bothered with him. She she actually shuts the uh, the window in the back of the limo so she doesn't have to listen to him. But when he picks her up the next day, it's perfect what you said about yin and yang because he's talking about the sun coming out. And she says something to the effect of, um, you know, you make it sound like it's it's such a rare occurrence and you make it sound like I have something to do with it. It happens every day and we're in California for crying out loud. And we don't know yet about his daughter and why he's so concerned with the weather. Um, But then she says kind of offhand, rain would be more appropriate and that rain brings life. And he says, so does the sun. So you can kind of see the bond start forming from that point. Yeah. She's not interested in, in talking to him at all yet but you can kind of see exactly as you said the yin to the yang and where he can actually put her in check
0: mm-hmm. um and i thought that bradley whitford is don degrati was really good he's another guy that's good in basically everything i i've there have been very few things i've seen with him that i've disliked and i remember watching him going all the way back to billy madison
1: yeah and I was thinking uh, Cabin in the Woods, too, which yep. this is such a far cry from.
0: Um, and then he was in that that short-lived show with Tom Hanks's son, Colin yeah, Hanks, yeah, yeah. The, the, the good guys, that buddy cop show, which was funny, actually.
1: I thought he was excellent, and I love the trifecta of him and the Sherman brothers. I think that they had a remarkable relationship in real life, but I love how it was portrayed in this film and how the actors did it. Like, you really felt the bond between them because they were, like, in the trenches making this movie with her. Um, You know, and I loved Jason Schwartzman and B.J. Novak playing the Sherman brothers.
0: They were perfect.
1: They were so great. Their chemistry was great. And for, not that they're unknowns, but, like, Jason Schwartzman is recognizable from those quirky roles in Wes Anderson movies and BJ Novak. Everybody knows him from The Office. Um, But they were just so great together. And really, Jason Schwartzman was probably the biggest surprise for me in this movie because I had no idea he was so musically inclined. But like, he just looked to be enjoying himself so much. And I think he mirrors richard sherman perfectly because anytime richard sherman is interviewed about this film you can tell it just meant the world to him to be able to work on not only a disney film but this one in particular and you know he just recalls everything with such a fondness and he probably recognized as he was going through it how special it was and i think that jason schwartzman embodied that perfectly
0: and um having seen so many interviews with Richard Sherman and knowing what was happening while this movie was being made um, and then watching it actually play out, like watching her interaction with these Sherman brothers who were so like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to do something great, it was soul-crushing to watch how she treated these guys. Yeah. Like you, you, you know Richard Sherman, it's like, everybody's now he has kind of become like America's grandpa and everybody loves him. Could you imagine anybody being so cruel to him? No,
1: it like breaks my heart, especially because honestly, anytime I watch an interview and he talks about Mary, Mary Poppins. Now I'm, I'm like in tears. There's a lump in my throat because you can just tell how much this meant to him. and, And to see how exactly, as you said, soul crushing this was in the beginning, but you know, it's just funny they had to grin and bear it because not only did they love the work that they were doing, but they're still just starting off. I mean, maybe I'm a bit biased because I have worked on film sets before, but like, there's always someone. There's always someone that doesn't respect the process and thinks that they know better and that their opinion is more valid than everyone else's. So I can only imagine being green and starting out and wanting to get the job done and do a good job for Walt Disney himself, where it must have been infinitely more frustrating.
0: Travers Goff is a very tortured person in yeah. this film. Um, obviously, he's battling a drinking problem, but I also think he's self-medicating Mm-hmm. As he's going through this this tuberculosis that ends his life so early, um, but Colin Farrell, you know, he was kind of a pretty boy actor for a long time in the late '90s and early 2000s,
1: and a Hollywood bad boy.
0: Yeah, but he's he's sort of become he he's he's fallen into the same category of Mickey Rourke, Robert Downey Jr pretty boys when they were younger obviously and and, let i'm just saying he's a a better looking man than mickey Rourke is but (laughs) you know at least he's still got his looks to him but went from being that pretty boy that people knew and being a hollywood bad boy but is actually a very skilled actor and has he's gotten older has gotten better i think colin farrell gets better with every film that he makes and i can't wait to see what he does in dumbo this this upcoming year
1: I agree a thousand percent. I was really happy that Disney took a chance on him because I thought because of I mean, that's it. Like, obviously, we have Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. But when Iron Man started, Disney didn't have Marvel yet. So they really didn't have much of a say in the casting. Um, But Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. has been able to turn his act around, uh, as has Colin Farrell. But because Colin Farrell's not Iron Man. I didn't think that they would maybe even look his way, especially for a film like this, but I'm really glad that they did because I, I think he nails the role. Um, I think he's wonderful with the child actors. I think, um, I have to imagine that, uh, he brought a lot of that out of them. Um, that being said though, I, I, I'm so reminded of Johnny Depp as J.M. Barry that I feel like almost anybody could have done this role, but I am glad it's Colin Farrell because he was very charming.
0: He's endearing for a guy for, for all intents and purposes for a drunk who can't keep a job. He's endearing because his daughters mean so much to him and he's, he tries so hard to give them a good life, but he doesn't want them to stay grounded. He wants them to have fun. He wants them to be children and pretend and play and dream and, and all of these things that it's contrasted against his own his own devices, and that's what makes the role and the character so dramatic and I think he I think he embodied it, and I felt that his performance was so was so likable. But at the same time, you would you would cringe when he's drunk at work and he's falling off the stage. But then you see him as the sober parent where he's so caring. I thought that he told the line really well. He really did
1: because, I mean, he obviously loved his family so much. And the wife as well. Because, you know, in the beginning he says when they moved to the new house, he's like, we're going to make beautiful memories here together. He really was a family man. But... I really thought that being a family man was going to be enough to pull him through the alcoholism. I don't think that the alcoholism was because of the tuberculosis and that he was self-medicating because of being sick. I think that the alcoholism was more about his job. And that's why he did have such a great relationship with Ginty, because she's a dreamer, too, and he does have a very serious, very demanding job. And I think that's why he's so attached to her is because he doesn't want to lose his childlike qualities. And, and he wants to kind of escape in that dream world with her. Um, You know, like I said, I thought that that would be enough to make him sober up, but even though he doesn't and he eventually passes because of the disease. I mean, in his final words, it just proves how much he loves his family, especially her. Um, he gives her tuppence to go buy pears. And I think he knows he's on his last, his, you know, his final hour. I think he does that to get her out of the house so that she doesn't have to watch. And that's why she hates the pears so much, because she returns with the pears and she drops them all over the floor and she says, I've let you down again. And she's old enough at that age to know what's going on, but she's still young enough and so much of a dreamer where she truly believes that he can still be saved and that this act was going to save him by getting him these pears.
0: Yeah, he's definitely, he's living his life through her. Absolutely. uh, There's no doubt about that. Um, There were a few subtle touches in this movie that really stood out to me. For example, um, you do see a map for the Florida Project on the wall in Walt's office. I love that. I thought that that was great. Um, Man's in the Forest is something that you hear Don DeGratty say one time. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's n- known, maybe not so well known, but that was a line, I think it was from Bambi. Yes. I believe so. But that's what the staff at the Disney Studios would say to each other when Walt was in the building, right. Man's in the Forest. Right. And you hear him say that right before they play Spoonful of Sugar. Um, And they weren't afraid to hide Walt's smoker's cough.
1: I Yeah, I was going to ask if you picked up on that.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's
1: very, very subtle. And I don't think they wanted to draw too much attention to it because this film was really not about Walt Disney. Um, but, you know, it's no secret that this... W- Mary Poppins was one of his last films and he was getting sick at this point.
0: Right. Um, and there is actually one scene where... You don't see him smoking, but you do see a cigarette,
1: and they do acknowledge it. They have the throwaway line because Pamela Travers bursts. I'm sorry, Mrs. Travers <laughs> bursts into his office, and uh, it, it's right before she leaves when she finds out about the animated penguins. And uh, he says, "I don't let anyone see me smoking. I don't want to form bad habits." He he knew,
0: right? Um, you know, I I mentioned last week. Um, but I can't watch Let's Go Fly a Kite anymore in the original Mary Poppins movie. Uh, it's been ruined, but in all the right ways because of this film. I get, to this day, and I've seen this movie quite a few times, I still get chills when they start to perform it and Don degrati takes her by the hand and starts dancing with her around the room.
1: I still cry. I haven't, I, I'm up to like probably seven or eight viewings of this film, and I'm still not able to get through that scene without actually shedding a tear. I'm working on it, though. Hopefully next time I'll I'll just tear up a little bit and then be able to move on. Um, I'm glad you bring that up, though, because all of the music was repurposed for Saving Mr. Banks, and I love how they use it differently than in the original film. Like, for example... The film starts with the flashback to her childhood, and there's that really haunting version of Chim Chim Cherie as the opening credits roll. And that becomes a theme, a sad theme for her childhood. They use it in a lot of the flashbacks. Right. You know, you were talking about Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. I love that scene.
0: It's excellent.
1: Because... The Sherman brothers are trying it out. They're they're pitching it, essentially. The way they intercut it with Travers Goff's role in the bank, you know, it's just so brilliantly done. And I was talking last week about how, as a child, it bored me to tears in Mary Poppins. But the way they repurpose it for this film, like, it's so much more driving because what it's being cut against in her childhood flashback is a lot more intense than you know, comparatively, it's it's almost odd to say, but to having Michael's Tuppence snatched out of his hands.
0: What amazed me the most is that, and and maybe it's because I hadn't watched Mary Poppins as an adult in such a long time, mm. prior to seeing this movie for the first time, was how it's so clear that this movie isn't really about Mary Poppins. I'm talking about the original film. It's not really about Mary Poppins, and it's not really about the Banks children. It's completely about Mr. Banks. It is so clear as day, but it took seeing this film to have it put in a spotlight.
1: Well, I think that's it. You know, the theme of the whole film is really about forgiveness and forgiving yourself. And that's why it becomes about George Banks is because she poured so much of her life into Mary Poppins. You know, there was the inspiration, like you said, from her aunt. And there were the names of the characters and, you know, memories that she had of her father. All of that was poured into the books. But George Banks was really more for Disney. He was what wove the story together because, you know, we had talked about it last week that Mary Poppins was really a series of vignettes and Walt wove the story of these neglectful parents through those vignettes to, you know, make the film cohesive. So I think that at first her concern was that Mr. Banks was so cruel because she was still kind of dealing with her own demons and, In her mind, she's thinking that her father was not a cruel man. Yes, he was an alcoholic, but he wasn't a bad father. And I think that's why she takes such issue with the portrayal of George Banks. And once they rewrote that ending, I think that's what finally won her over is because she realizes that he's going to be redeemed and that her issues really aren't with her father. They're more about herself because she feels responsible for his death. She feels like she couldn't get the pears back in time and she let him down. But I think what also gets glossed over a little bit is that she also gave him his last drink and she wanted to please him. That was all it was. She knew it was bad for him. She knew he couldn't really have it, but she wanted to make him feel better. And she goes and finds one of his stashed away bottles of booze and she slips it into the bed with him and I think that she really thought that she killed him with that because at the end she she yells at her aunt once he passes you said you'd fixed everything and she truly believed that he could be saved
0: right and her aunt is like the most hardened person on earth right but with all the best of intentions. And you can see where not only does she model Mary Poppins off of her aunt, but she sort of used her aunt as an inspiration for herself and how she should live her own life. And she takes after her, really.
1: That's the only thing that kind of felt a little disconnected to me because she's obviously angry and feels that her aunt let her down, but like, I can't really imagine why she'd want to be like her after such a traumatic experience when she claimed that she could save her father and then she didn't. The only thing that I can maybe rationalize is that her aunt was very practical and I think that's what kind of ruined the dreamer in her was obviously this traumatic incident in her life but I think that's why she chooses to live this way now is because she doesn't want to get her hopes
0: up about anything anymore I also think that she looked at her father being a dreamer as almost as if he was being irresponsible and that he wasn't taking care of himself true I wonder how much of this is she thought that if her father had lived his life more like her aunt and had faced the realities of the world whether or not he would have died
1: I believe it's in the scene where the Sherman brothers play her Spoonful of Sugar for the first time. She says that Mary Poppins' intent was never to come in and fill the kids' heads with fluff. It was to show them the harsh realities of the world because she's practical.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, and she said it's much like your theme parks. Give them a bunch of sugar and dreams and fluff and send them on their way. Yes. And that's not the point of Mary Poppins. Um, But, you know, I I think that there is... I think there's the Mary Poppins that she wrote. I think there's the Mary Poppins that Walt Disney wanted to portray. And he just tried to find a way to make them cohesive.
1: I almost wish, and maybe it would have been too cheesy of an ending. Or it would have just been so far removed from the historical accuracy that they couldn't do it. I almost wish that Disney did bring the dreamer back out of her in a way he did because when he flies to London to have the heart to heart with her, he says you need to forgive yourself for this. And then all of a sudden she can start writing again. And I believe that is true to life because she had five Mary Poppins books before the film came out. And then after the film, she did three more. So. I'm hoping that maybe he kind of did bring that out of her a little bit even if she wasn't completely into the idea or she really didn't want to buy into the Disney magic.
0: Well, I hate to break it to you, but that that entire scene was made up.
1: Right. But I'm <laughs> I'm just saying and I do want to his- talk about the historical accuracy of a couple of more scenes because you know, this is one of those instances like you said the scene was made up. Uh, we've recently seen Bohemian Rhapsody and one of the things that was our biggest gripe with the movie we thought it was wonderful but it wasn't historically accurate and it bothers me more about Bohemian Rhapsody because that's recent history and to me you can't really take that much liberty with something that almost just happened Um, but when it comes to doing a film that's true to life I think there are some instances where you have to write a little fiction in order to tell a good story. And that scene between Walt Disney and P.L. Travers is one of them where he goes and chases her down to London. Yes. It's one of the best scenes of the film. I think that's where Tom Hanks is on fire as Disney. Um, And yeah, was it true? No, but I hope there's truth in it that she kept writing after this.
0: Correct. Um, That is historically inaccurate. There are a lot of things you'll read that say she wanted Julie Andrews. There's a lot of things you'll read that say she didn't want Julie Andrews. Um, The, you know, and Walt Disney was not there for most of her stay in Los Angeles. Right. He was on vacation in Palm Springs. He was only there a couple of days, but you're led to believe that he was basically there every day, not the case.
1: Or that he had to be. Right. he was like completely on call for her
0: tantrums. The end of the movie is sort of left ambiguous in regards to whether or not she liked the film. Because she's sort of smiling as the screening of Mary Poppins concludes. But the fact is, she hated Mary Poppins. We mentioned it last week. And even at the premiere, she was trying to convince Walt Disney to pull the animated penguins. And his exact words to her were, Pamela, that ship has sailed. I kind of wish that they would have done that in this movie.
1: See, that's where I'm saying, like, you do have to kind of take liberties to make a better film and a Disney film at that. I can't I can't imagine a Disney film ending on that note, whether it was true or not. Um what was really accurate was that premiere. Let's talk about that a little bit Um, because they don't, they don't have one continuous piece of footage of that premiere, but they were, they did manage between the television. I think there's like a black and white camera, a color camera and radio interviews. They were able to piece it together in chronological order of like from people stepping out of their limo and doing the red carpet and doing the press and making their way into the building. And, uh, you know, we've watched it and they got everything from like Lillian Disney's dress to the seven dwarfs on the red carpet. Obviously, P.L. Travers dress, but just everything is so spot on.
0: Oh, yeah. They knocked it out of the park. Like so many of these sets, they totally killed it. I mean, everything... You, it it was straight out of reality. It was straight out of nineteen sixty four.
1: The only place where they probably did take a little liberty here, but I don't care because I love it. Is when Mickey, yeah, uh, P.L. Travers is walking the red carpet alone. Ralph drives her, and he kinds of hands her off and says, "Just remember, this is your night. None of this would be possible if it wasn't for you," which is true, because without the character that she created, we would have none of it. Um, But she does start to walk the carpet alone. Everybody's doing press. Uh, You know, you got Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke up on the platform doing an interview with Disney. And uh, they reverse the camera shot and Mickey's standing next to her. And he offers her an arm and he escorts her into the premiere. And I love that they did that. I mean, I love that they have Mickey in this to begin with, but I love that no matter what, you can't say no to that mouse and that he wins her over and even she goes along with it.
0: Right. And obviously it's symbolic that linked in arms, Mary Poppins and Mickey Mouse are going into the premiere together. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It, uh, I just, I hadn't seen that film of the premiere and after watching it, it was so much more impressive. I was so blown away with how close they got like you said, with everything. Again, I mentioned it before, but so much credit due to the set designers. And we know from having been to Walt's office and seeing how the archive has reconstructed things based on photographs, they really didn't want to miss a beat with the aesthetic of this film.
1: No, and I think that was one of the things that struck me most as we were doing the tour of the Walt Disney Studios. I mean, I was just completely overwhelmed to be standing on that property to begin with. But one of the things that was at the forefront of my mind as we were walking through was Saving Mr. Banks. I mean, obviously, you've got so much history on that lot to begin with, but you've got this film's history there. Um, and that's really what I was thinking about more than anything else, was Mary Poppins and the Saving Mr. Banks story.
0: Right, Um, and they pointed out, when we took the tour, they pointed out the bench. Which we do have pictures
1: of and we'll post.
0: I I loved this movie when I saw it the first time. I enjoy it more now because we've been on that property and because we've not only seen where they shot this film, but we have a clearer understanding of exactly how the property is laid out and you can see how cohesive it was and having been there it's like oh yeah and this is where this would have happened and they would have done this in here it was it was fun while we were taking the tour but it brought me right back there watching the film absolutely um in all i love this movie i think this movie got shafted when it came to awards time yes i mean it it didn't win anything and i don't i don't think it got a lot of nominations either
1: it it reminds me of waking sleeping beauty in a way is that it's such a mind-blowing film and maybe we're a little biased because we are hardcore disney fans but i feel like waking sleeping beauty is like the best movie nobody's talking about and the same with this
0: mm-hmm. i would agree um i think that it I think it does a great service to Mary Poppins, and let's call it what it is. This was an incredible story. This This movie had to be put on film. This story had to be committed to film because I've... it is so dramatic, and, and it's almost hard to believe, and I think that they knocked this movie out of the park. This is one of my favorite Disney Disney movies of all time, certainly one of the best Disney films I've seen in the last 10 years.
1: It's easy to see why they chose to tell this story because you're right. There is so much drama there. There's not a lot that they had to elaborate on. I mean, that's the thing. We've talked about how Emma Thompson portrays her as such a horrible person, but like they have the tapes. They didn't... They didn't necessarily need to embellish on a lot. You know, I'm sure that, like I said, part of it is you do that to make a better story and make it more dramatic, but they didn't make her out to be a villain for the sake of. They have all of this. She
0: was this way.
1: And Richard Sherman did have a lot of input on this film. I forget if he has producer credit or not, but I know that he was on set for a lot of it, and... um. You know, I'm, I'm sure he was at the very least a consultant because he lived through it. So, like I said, do you take liberties to make for a better story? Yes, but I don't think, especially because this film portrayed Walt in a certain way. So I don't think that they took too many liberties as far as creating drama or embellishing the story because they're certainly not going to do anything that's going to put him in a poor light. And you also really can't, you know, for P.L. Travers, if she's got living family, you can't necessarily bash her and tarnish her memory either. And why would you want to? Because ultimately she is the woman that gave us Mary Poppins. What I really appreciate about what this film does, too, is that they don't make Disney out to be an angel in this. He never does anything mean he's never aggressive towards her, but they do kind of have him speak to her where he's trying to be a little bit persuasive. But they never did anything that made him seem like he was doing it in an underhanded way or that he was just trying to be a sneaky businessman. Or as as uh, they even have you know, Tom Hanks has a line where he says, um, I know you think that I'm,
0: I'm this movie mogul or something to that effect. Right. And he's smarmy. He's definitely smarmy and he's savvy. But yes, he doesn't directly go out of his way to lie to her, but he does leave certain words out of his sentences. So to is not have lied, but also not tell the whole truth. About what his intentions were with some of her characters. Right,
1: but I think he was always portrayed as the Walt that the world has come to know and the family man who just wants to tell a good story. I don't think they ever, you know, shone a light on him that would make him look like this was just a business prospect or that he didn't care about the film or the characters. They didn't do anything that. Would tarnish his reputation or, you know, like, I don't want to see him like that either. I don't think that's how he was at all. I think that he was a fair guy. I don't think that he was argumentative. I just think he knew how to get what he wanted by being nice. And he's one of few people in Hollywood that successfully was able to do that.
0: Sure. Uh, news for this week. We talked a few minutes ago about how we took the tour of the studio. They announced uh, that starting next year, they are going to do monthly tours of the studio for D23 members only. Once a month, they're going to run the tours.
1: I still don't feel special anymore.
0: I feel just as special as I did then. Because we were able to take advantage of that when it was a very exclusive event. But frankly, if you're a fan of this company, I think everybody should have an opportunity to see what we saw.
1: That's true. You know, coming off that tour, I said this was exactly the experience that I hoped it would be. If you're a real Disney nut, you're most likely going to know most of the history. So some of the facts aren't going to blow you away. But just standing there and being able to walk in Walt's footsteps and not just that in the animators and, you know, the amount of history that's there and with this film too, saving Mr. Banks. You know, it's an experience we were very lucky to have, and I'm glad that more people will get to have it.
0: Yes. And uh, just a few hours ago, some news breaking that uh, Disney has purchased a ranch just outside of Celebration, Florida, for $23 million. So, of course, the Internet now set ablaze wondering, what is Disney developing? Frank, I don't think they're developing anything. I think that this is land that they've bought for conservation. It's not that close to the parks they don't have a hand in celebration anymore so i really don't see where they're going to use this for much else than just conserving a piece of property
1: i'm wondering if it's maybe more housing for cast could be that because let's also not forget we're getting uh, galaxy's edge they're doing some expansions there's going to be a lot more hotels you might just need more more housing for staff there because the staff is growing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you all for joining us this week and every week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean. I mean, we're basically everywhere. com slash home. It's it's mouthy, but that's the website uh, where you can get um, every show that we've done in addition to uh, the Amazon video streams for every film that we have reviewed here on Monoreal Radio. And we thank our wonderful sponsor and partner uh, for setting that up over at Amazon.com.
1: If you are looking to book a trip to the parks for 2019, get in touch with me at j.zelezi at magicalvacationplanner.com and I can help you out with booking.
0: And something exciting, actually, Uh, this Thursday coming up, we are going to be joining Detour to Neverland on his podcast. Brendan is a great host. He has a great program. We're going to be talking Disneyland, Disney World. We're going to talk his podcast, our podcast. Um, It's a lot of fun. It's going to be a great listen. We had a good time with Brendan, and that's going to be this Thursday coming up. So make sure that you jump on over to Detour to Neverland and download that program, as well as his others, because he's really good.
1: He's a Disney fan who interviews other Disney fans about turning their passion into projects.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really unique concept for a yeah. show. And what I like about it is I've now started to listen to other podcasts and follow other people on Twitter and Instagram, people I didn't know were out there. Because I heard about them on Brendan's show. Right. So we're really happy and excited to join him there. We're not going to be back next week. Don't worry. We're not going away for long. But next week is Christmas none of you guys are going to be concerned with downloading a podcast (laughs) next week (laughs) and we're going to take a break Christmas is time to be spent with your families Uh, so thank you to everybody a Merry Christmas to all of you Uh, a Happy Hanukkah to those of you who celebrated Hanukkah last week as well and uh, we will be back on New Year's Day with something special 2019 is going to be a really fun year for Monoreal Radio for Jackie I'm Sean have a magic